You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the first ever Hazard Ground Podcast, his name is Matt Eversman. Uh, we want to talk about his time as Staff Sergeant Matt Eversman, but he's now been retired from the Army for several years, and uh, Matt's claim to fame, or whatever you want to say, uh, was Black Hawk Down. You may remember the movie. He was the the star, the, his character was the star of the movie, uh, and of course the book written by Mark Bowden, and he joins us now. Matt, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure having you here on the podcast. We appreciate it. Hey, well, I, and I, I should jump in and say, you know, Colonel Zeno, it, it, it's a pleasure to be on the other end of the phone with you, sir. Uh, thank you for, for having me on. Uh, I'm delighted to, 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 to participate, and uh, always good to chat with you about anything, sports or particularly the military, and uh, just thanks for having me on. No, absolutely, and let's let's go back here. Uh, you know, this is kind of, because a lot of people are familiar with the story, but I kind of want to get a little bit of backstory on you. Uh, what made you sign up for the Army? I mean, you, you're, you're an 18 year old kid. You just decide this is the career path I'm going for. You know, the, uh, the I'll give you the abridged version because this is one that could could take a long time. But uh, I, I was actually uh, three years into my my college career as an economics and French major, and uh, very kindly they put me on a, on a sabbatical to uh, kind of get my head screwed on. And uh, while I was home, this is in 1987. Um, a friend of mine from high school uh, showed up at, uh, at where I was working. I was working for my parents in this little lumber yard, and a friend of mine walked in the door. I hadn't seen him since high school, started chatting. It turned out that he had uh, met a similar fate earlier than me, and uh, he had joined the Army, and he was stationed in Germany, of all places. And, you know, this is height of the Cold War, listening to him uh, just tell me stories of what life was like when Germany was divided and you know, it was one of those things you always think, man, I'll, I'll probably join the military at some point in my life. But uh, that really just trying to put me put put me right on azimuth, so to speak. I'm like, you know, I think this is this is something I could get into. So I was a uh, I was a 21 year old going in, or 22 year old, I guess, going in um, to the gun club, and uh, never looked back. Okay, so you start your army career. Uh, did you know that you wanted to be a ranger? Did you know that that was the career? How did you end up? Becoming part of the you know elite special ops guys. Yeah, the uh, like so many people, as you know, you know, you, you join the army for whatever reason that motivates you, and 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 you know, we all have recruiting stories to tell. But uh, you know, I always thought that this idea, this ranger, um, um, you know, that you saw on the on the recruiting poster was just the the coolest thing. And I honestly, I didn't know anything about anything other than I wanted to be in the infantry and you know maybe jump out of a plane and have an adventure and. Um, the recruiter's like, well, you can't, you can't join the Rangers till you go to another unit first, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it 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 got me into the big conventional army, and I realized I could, you know, if I worked hard, I could get to Ranger school, which I did. And then if I worked hard, you know, I could apply and and join the Ranger regiment, and you kind of could get on that that special operations uh, career path from there. Uh, you know, I look back on it like so many folks, Mark. It, you know, the the stars were in line for me. Um, I was so fortunate that and average guy a knucklehead like me could uh weasel his way through the system and, and eventually wind up in you know one of the greatest um you know special operations units in in, in the world and uh you know wow just uh, i pinch myself thinking back on it okay so you you are now in the rangers and you guys are an elite fighting force and all of a sudden you're training 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 and you, like everybody in the military 
you want to be put to the test. Like you really want to make sure all the training that you got actually works. And and by not saying anybody's you know itching to go into battle or anything like that, but you're sitting there. Uh, where were you stationed at the time when you guys got the call for to to, to go over to Mogadishu? Yeah, I was sitting out in the Third Ranger Battalion, down right down at the road in Columbus, in Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay, and uh, you know, just a little footnote on that, Mark. And I thought about this 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 idea too. You know, I think in peacetime. You know, in a pre nine eleven world, if some of us remember, you, you know, there um, Grenada in eighty three, Panama in nineteen eighty nine. You know, these low intensity conflicts that that kind of came and go very quick, came and went very quickly. Then, you know, the, the the first Gulf War, you know, appeared to be a pretty quick one. You know, we had not been decisively engaged in a in a long term. Um, war as an army. And so if you didn't deploy in any of those, I think, and I fell into this category of, you know, you really wanted to go. Like, you you really joined the army because, hey, this is the height of the Cold War. This is good versus evil. You know, that that was certainly in my my, um, psyche, you know, thinking about it. And of course, it always briefs well until you've been shot at, you know. So, you know, at the time, when, when I got to the Ranger Regiment, you know, I kind of literally figured out that you know, about every five years, something would come up that would get the Rangers involved. And I figured if I was going to go to war, this was the group to go with. So, you know, we did. We trained and trained and trained and perfected the, you know, our skills, you know, all waiting for the word of, you know, and you look back again, it's sort of um, juvenile to some extent, you know, waiting for something bad to happen. But, you know, we were. And then in, uh, in 1993, we got the word we're, we're, we're going to be part of this task force that's going to go to Mogadishu, Somalia to capture a really bad guy. Well, let me ask you, because it's so different nowadays. I mean, we have so much media coverage. We know that there are bad spots in the world like Syria. We know that there are bad things going on in Libya, obviously Iraq and Afghanistan, the Middle East. You know, back then in the early 90s, the media coverage wasn't as pervasive as it is now. Did you guys have an idea while you were at Fort Benning, that oh my God! All of a sudden, you know, this is conflict going on brewing, and we're we're the guys in the hopper ready to get called up. Uh, no, we didn't, or at least I should say I didn't. You know, Mark, I could only give you my my observations. You know, at the time, um, you, you know, the United States participation in the Horn of Africa was all humanitarian and peacekeeping, right? Um, you know, which kind of automatically, if if you were in this direct action community as the, the ranger regiment was it's like well we're not gonna you know there's no chance of us going there we're not handing out mres or doing um you know humanitarian stuff i mean that's that's not that's not one of our tasks and so that was completely um not even on the, my radar screen you know when this this mission popped up i mean i thought we were going to go to like the sudan or someplace but you know, lo and behold, here we are going to go into Mogadishu, Somalia, in the middle of this this peacekeeping operation, which is a little convoluted anyway. What were you guys told before you guys left? I mean, your your, your commander, your CO, whoever it is, battalion commander, uh, regiment commander comes in. What was what did he say to you guys before you guys got on a plane about what the mission was? Yeah, so we we you know we got alerted to this mission, and as part of this this task force that was put together. It was, you know, uh, multiple special operations units. We all converged, you know, at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to, to to train on this plan. And as I recall, you know, we knew this guy, this warlord named Mohammed Adid, had been, uh, you know, pretty much committing acts of genocide and, um, you know, just a really bad, a really bad actor. And um, definitely 
putting um, putting putting a uh, a roadblock, literally and figuratively, in the way of the humanitarian effort. And it was also this doggone um, idea that that if this guy is having such an impact on um, the 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 flow of this United Nations operation, let alone some of the uh, other atrocities he was committing. I mean, he definitely needed to be stopped. Um, as the story goes, you know, no member of the United Nations Security Council was at all interested in capturing or killing this guy. And you know, so it sort of circled back to the to the United States. Um, you know, and, and again, if you you listening to the story, you know, at the time we're we're like, hey, this is this is this is just what right up our alley. This is what we want to do. So we knew going in. It was going to be a snatch mission, and we knew we, we needed to train and perfect, uh, you know, a couple of courses of action to do it. We also were very well uh, informed on what fighting in the city was going to be like, though I certainly had no experience for real fighting in the city. But, you know, as, as you're leading up to this story about, you know, what happened on October 3rd of 1993, you know, I'd say we had as good as, as, good as information as we could have had at the time you know about what the, the the landscape really looked like, and and what was um, you know possibly going to happen when you're fighting these these mobs of people in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, so you get to Mogadishu. You guys are camped out at the airport, right? I mean, that's where the the kind yeah. of home base was. How long were you there prior to getting the call that you were actually going to go on the raid and go after Adid? Okay, so we we got uh, we we deployed at the end of um, August of nineteen ninety three, and you know the raid actually that that was written about was on October third. Um, so about six you know, weeks. A, a, a lot of a lot was going on. You know, we realized right off the bat that capturing this guy, you know, in his own city is a tough thing. So you know, Plan B is to go after all his his. Um, Infrastructure, you know, like go after, break his supply chain. Much similar to what we did with bin Laden in in, in Iraq and everything else and going after all his underlings. Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, that's that's precisely what what we did. And, um, you know, with with varying degrees of success, more good than bad, but, um, you know, it it was a methodical, uh, as methodical as you can be when it's a human-driven mission. When I say that, you know, going after a person is, uh, you, you know, they, they kind of dictate when you're going to launch or when you're going to go. So, uh, well, I think we were having pretty good, uh, pretty good luck, um, you know, moving in on this, this target and knowing that sooner or later we're going to capture a deed. You know, this, this raid, I mean, obviously you were doing train up while you were here in the States, but once you got there uh, and going on some of these other attempts to get some of the underlings of a deed, some of his lieutenants, whatever you want to call it, was there a lot of, I guess, rehearsals and, and, and practice going into the city, into the car market, and, and all the stuff that you saw? Uh, there was. You know, we, we did a pretty thorough um, couple of weeks of, of, of very intensive training back at Fort Bragg. And then I tell you, you know, pretty much any time when we, we weren't out on a mission, we were uh, doing some, we would fly out to the, to the desert or fly out uh, someplace else and, and, you know, continually refine this plan. And uh, I mean, we did some of the best training I've ever done in my entire career while we were in Mogadishu. Um, you know, a testament to the leadership there. I mean, we we, we did a lot of good shooting. We did a lot of um, perfecting our, our our you know like our demolitions techniques and you know just working on our drill. Uh, you know, in the hopes that with each mission we would get better and better and and really get this thing uh, wired tight. You know, the whole plan 
you know, of doing this is, is, is to have it done like in 30 minutes or less. So, you right. know, anything you can do to shave time off of that while still accomplishing your task is really important. And that requires a lot of rehearsal. Well, and you mentioned that you were going after a person. And I, I guess for a lot of people who have never been in combat and those who are listening who never put on a uniform, the difference between going after a person and so taking a, a, a target, so to speak, if you're in a land war, right, and, and help me explain this because just for, again, people who aren't familiar with this stuff, if you're trying to take a certain area of land, it's a lot different than going after an individual person. What are the biggest challenges outside of not knowing when they're going to be and where they are? What's the biggest challenges of going to get one person as opposed to we want to take out a target or a building? Yeah, well, you know, you you hit the nail right on the head. And, you know, if you're looking at the concentric circles of, of um, you know, variables that can affect success, you know, the first one is the, the person you're after anyway. I mean, if they go underground, that like Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden or Zawahiri's or Kelly, any of them, you know, that, that makes it, they know where they're going to go. You don't know. So that, that puts you at the disadvantage. And then you figure also, you know, they know the landscape, you know, they know the, you know, they know the sewer systems, they know the warehouses, they know their network of safe houses. They, they know that you've just shown up in country for the first time and looking at a map. So, you know, that's a disadvantage. You think about, they have a network of friendly support throughout. You're trying to develop a network of intel. Um, you know, many times those are are weighted in favor of the bad guys and the good guys. And, you know, so on and on and on, you know, there's a lot of constantly uh, changing variables that are going to affect, um, you know, the outcomes of this mission when you're going after a person that don't necessarily affect a um, – uh, you know, a, a mission to uh, capture terrain, you know, or to occupy an area, you know, that, 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 hey, we're going to jump in and take over the, you know, the airfield at Rio Hato in Panama, you know, we're going to push all the bad guys out and secure it so follow-on forces can go, you, you know, you're, you're kind of just being a really big sledgehammer. Here you got to be um, very methodical, very surgical, and, and it's affected by a lot of other stuff, which makes it a tremendously um, complex operation as, as, as even as much as it sounds very simple hey you're just going to go and wrap some guy up while he's sleeping uh, i mean there's a, there's a lot that goes into it as you mentioned uh, october 3rd was the date of the start of the raid that was a sunday back in 1993 take me through that morning you wake up is it a normal morning so far to you did you guys have an inkling from the day before that something might be happening get me get me through the beginning of that day no, you know, it was a normal day. And by this time in our deployment, Mark, you know, Sunday, uh, I worked out that this was going to basically be a, a day off. My a lighter day, right? Pulling, you know, pulling security. But, you know, this was going to be one of those down days. And, um, you know, as I remember, it, it was just a beautiful, sunny, I mean, day. You know, Mogadishu uh, at one point must have been a, a, an unbelievably beautiful city. I mean, it truly, as you look at some of the architecture downtown as you flew over, I mean, it's really quite, uh, it, it was, as I remember, it was really, really, there were some beautiful buildings. And, and again, we're right on the coast of the, of the Indian Ocean, beautiful um, beaches. Not like right near near the equator. Now. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you, I mean, I mean, you have to have beautiful weather every day. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was nice, bright and sunny. And, um, you know, sometime around mid-morning, got uh, all the leaders got summoned to the uh, operations center to be told there was a possibility of a mission that was going to go down and, you know, explain that the, the, that some of the, uh, the intelligence we had had um, pinpointed two of Adid's top guys that were going to meet um, in this area called the Bakara Market, and maybe even Adid himself 
but you know, there, I remember there was a but in there. You know, it, 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 we're waiting on some more intelligence to be vetted, and you know, sort of keep give your boys an alert, but don't don't anybody get get too spun up just yet. And so we briefed the briefed the uh, the team, and, and again, kind of pulled this playbook out, knowing um, you know each of our um, you know helicopter assignments, what we were going to be doing, tasked to do, and. Uh, you know, by that time, we, we had done this mission, you know, multiple times, um, both in day and night and by air and by ground. So, you know, knowing the the the, the drill was was not a, um, you know, this was not anything out of the ordinary that we would go into town, set up a blocking position, um, you know, to deny the enemy access into the target building. Like that, that was that was sort of our mission from my perspective of my helicopter. And, you know, this would be no different than any of the others. I mean, I guess I, I'm wondering when your superiors tell you that, hey, listen, you know, there's there's a thing going on at this hotel. We may be going in. Get your guys ready, but don't tell them too much. Don't. Was that something common? Did you kind of get that false alarm a lot from from the higher ups? No, and in fact, and it's funny you say that too, Mark, because you know this is 1993, you know, and we're in Mogadishu, Somalia. No cell phones. Right. No email, mm, no I mean, internet, really no nothing. So you, you know, we, we used to have this running joke sometimes that 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 you know some of the the intelligence officers would would really keep this um, you know there when they would give a briefing. They're like, oh, you know, you're not cleared to hear something or other. And we're like, well, you know, literally, who are we going to tell? Uh, <laughs> so when I when I said that, um, you know, we got the alert for this mission. Uh, you know, we pretty much were told everything. I don't think that there was anything. You know, any. Any any room for uh, you know loose interpretation of what we were doing, and and by this point again we've done done six other missions, so uh, you know everybody was as briefed as they could have been uh, going into it. The only thing that I re- absolutely remember um, distinctly, and I didn't learn until afterwards, was that many of the other leaders um, knew that the Bakar market was a notoriously bad part of town. Um, I had not been in this leadership position on any other mission, so here I am kind of on my first day. And, you know, I just assumed it was all bad, but everybody seemed to know that the Bacara market was a really bad spot, which would have been nice to know, I think, in in, in hindsight. But other than that, uh, you know, I I think I knew we all knew everything we needed to know. Okay, so when does the actual final call come that, hey, we're going, this is the target, here is the plan? Um. I couldn't give you the exact time, but I would say probably within um, 20 or 30 minutes of the launch. Um, oh, really? Okay. We would, have been, we would have been told, you know, they would have broadcast to us to, you know, get your gear on and, um, you know, leaders come to this, uh, the, 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 the operation center and everybody get ready to muster and move out to the, to the helicopters. I mean, literally, we had that, that process down pretty, pretty quickly like that. I mean, you, you, you could be... You know, in shorts and a T-shirt, switch to your gear, all dressed up, all your stuff ready to go, and moving out to the helicopter in like ten minutes. Now, were you in the? Were you part of the planning in the operations tent? Did were you specifically asked to go, or you got it from somebody else? No, you know, I, I well, actually, let me back up. I was not part of the planning for this mission. I was on the receiving end of, hey, you're in charge of Chalk Four. Okay, your guys are going to insert here. Then you do your stuff while you're on the ground. So, yeah, but I also, Mark, you know, it's important to, 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 to point out to the listeners who might not know this. You know, that's not an uncommon right. uh, phenomena. And, and that's why we have staffs 
on, you know, in our units that, that, that do all that planning. And if time permits, you know, they want to get more feedback and feedback. But, you know, I, I just, not to be quibbling here, but, you know, it, it's important for people to understand that it wasn't like, you know, Keystone Cops planning and right. into you a really bad idea and you just kind of had to be a lemming and go out and do it. I mean, <laughs> you had the, sort of the best planners in the in the world doing this thing. And, you know, there's this inherent trust you have as well. And granted, it's perfect, not all the time, but, you know, when they're like, hey, man, you're going into, you know, the northwest corner of the objective, you're going to be, you know, in the blocking position there. I mean, got it. There's no no shock to me there. It's just where and when is is really what we're, we're we're asking them to fill in, which they did. In that same vein, when when you got the plan, was it anything? Was there anything out of place? Did were you confident? I mean, I hate to ask the question because it's so hard in our line of work to question our leaders. But there there are times when you know we've all gone out on missions and they tell you what's going on, and you just get that sinking feeling in your gut. You're going, you know, this just doesn't. I understand it. I understand the plan. I got it, but something isn't really sitting right in your gut. Did you feel confident with the plan when you got it? You know, I did. Uh, and as much as I say that, too, you know, listen, you know, anytime you go out of the wire, there's an uneasy feeling, um, you know, about what, what, what could happen, what might happen. And, uh, you know, at least, again, for me, there, there's that, that, that bit of, you know, fear and nervousness that, that, that creeps in. Um, I think everybody always got a little bit um, uh, more in tune with their feeling about this when it's a day mission. But again, you, you know, we're relying on, on, you know, speed, surprise, and violence of action. And I got a long, long-winded answer to the question. Uh, the short answer is no. You know, I didn't think that we were being sent out on a, on a goofy thing, and nor did I think that there would be anything different that would occur today that hadn't occurred already in any of our other missions. You know, I mean, we had had a mission where uh, we got, we, we had to insert in a different, you know, in a different point than we had planned on. So we had to adjust on the fly. You know, we'd been on missions where we thought we were going in by air and wound up going in by ground. So we had to adjust on the fly. You know, we'd been in a couple of firefights. So, you know, we understood what, that that changes everything. And, you know, so all the, again, these variables that happen on the battlefield, we'd, um, you know, been able to go through an iteration or two of those. So that sort of bringing um, bringing it back to the question, I, I I don't think I don't recall thinking anything would be any different. Um, other than there's always you know a reality of combat, but other than that, you're kind of like you know let's just go and get this thing done and you know be back in a half hour and hopefully nobody gets hurt. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let me kind of break it down for everybody listening. Task Force Ranger, which was the tip of the spear, if you will. Uh, to to go get a deed. It, it was made up of uh, First Special Forces Operational Detachment, which is the Delta Force. You had your your unit, Bravo Company, 3rd Battalion, uh, 75th Ranger Regiment. You had the 160 SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Those were all the pilots who took care of all the flying. You had some SEALs there, and you had some uh, pararescue men and, and Air Force kind of control, uh, Air Force controller guys, th- th- those badasses that were they're together. Can you roughly, I know we don't have a sand table kit to use a military expression, but can you roughly verbalize the plan so everybody gets an idea of what's going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a simple one. And I mean, take a take a big landmark in, in, in downtown Atlanta, um, you know, call it the, uh, you know, the, the doggone Turner Field, um, you know, and if you were, if you imagine you were just um, looking at it from a helicopter stationary, looking down at Turner Field and right in the, you know, right in the center right at second of base. the field <laughs> is where we're going to get, uh, you know, is where the bad guys are going to be. And then 
go to the outside of the stadium and at each four of the, each of the four kind of cardinal corners we're going to put a group of rangers that are going to you know imagine a circle of defense all the way around the stadium or perimeter uh, as they so call it yeah you know so that, that that the the enemy can't come in and help their bad guy friends out or anyone can't run away and you know literally it's this simple we're going to put our our assault team um, you know, the guys from Bragg are going to fly into the stadium generally and clear the entire stadium to, to, to focus in on the bad guys. And the Rangers will be on the outside. And, you know, intermixed with them, we'll have some SEALs and some Rangers and vehicles driving through the city. We'll have, you know, the combat controllers and the PJs will be with, um, you know, a little bit with all the elements so we can command the aircraft as well as, um, you know, add to our medical uh, support. But it literally, Mark, I mean, it's that simple. Oh, and, and one, one other thing, you know, once the 160th, you know, the, the, our helicopters insert us onto the target, both inside the stadium and out, they're just going to circle overhead. They're just going to fly overhead and look for bad guys because yeah. they're heavily armed with their, um, you know, with the, 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 the miniguns and rocket launchers and that stuff. But in a nutshell, for the layman, I mean, that, that's how this plane is going to play out. Okay. And, and just to be the, the, Delta guys, the, the special force guys, were the ones who were actually doing the snatch and grabbing of the target individuals, correct? Yes, that, okay. that, that is the plan, and that's what they do really, really well. Yeah, and, and to just be clear with everybody who's listening, you know, the fact that you p- pointed out that those helicopters are supposed to hover overhead obviously is a big deal, as we'll get into uh, later on. If everybody knows, is familiar with the story of Black Hawk Down, that's part of the reason how it got its name. Okay, so you guys get the call to go, and... You talk with your chalk, which is the guys who you were responsible for. What did you say to them? Yeah, very briefly, we're going to be, just repeat the mission. We're going to be in the northwest corner of the Target building, about a block and a half away from the the Olympic Hotel, where the uh, bad guys are. And um, we will do an L-shaped, if you can imagine, just a big L-shaped perimeter on the corner of a city block at an intersection. Um, you know, to deny the bad guys access. I mean, we're going to set up a blocking position. And uh, the only thing that was a little bit of a hitch was we did know going in that um, there were some tall buildings right at our insertion point. So the helicopters would not be able to land. We'd have to toss fast ropes down and uh, slide down the ropes to get in. And it was probably going to be about a 40-foot insertion because of the height of the buildings, you know, the obstacles around, which is, you know, kind of good news, bad news. I mean, it's good news when you're using helicopters to insert in an urban area. You can go anywhere you want. You're not restricted by the grid of the city. Um, the bad news is, of course, sometimes you might have to do it from a high, a higher altitude than one would like. And 40 feet, believe it or not, is, you know, when you're looking across the playing field, 40 feet is a pretty simple toss of a football or a baseball. But when you're looking vertically, it's a, it might as well be like 400 feet. Yeah, I mean, just to put the, the green monster in Boston, for those who, just as a point of reference, is 37 feet high. So you are basically sitting at the top of that thing, sliding down a rope to the ground. Yeah, with all your with all your equipment. Yeah, okay. So you know, it's fifty pounds of gear. Let's let's not underestimate that. That's higher than most insertions would be. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So you guys are flying there. You're in the helicopters. Obviously, you guys are you're jacked up. Your adrenaline is pumping. Uh, are you nervous right now? Uh, you know, you kind of. Uh, and again, when you say you, I can only talk about me myself right. personally. Um, yeah, you know, you're, you're always, 
nervous. I mean, for you, you have that, that burst of adrenaline. There's that excitement. Uh, certainly there's fear. There's concern. All those things are happening. And I think, you know, sometimes as a leader, um, it actually can be a little bit um, easier because you're constantly focusing on your, your, your tasks for the, for the force that are going to be on the ground. And, and that's sort of, I don't want to say it's a distraction or maybe a diversion of your, you know, your emotions don't quite get in the way of that if you're focusing on all the things I've got to do. And as you know, you know, this, this sort of checklist mindset of, you know, the, the list of things I have to do um, when I get on the ground, which have nothing to do with picking up my weapon and shooting, you know, is pretty tremendous. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of, it, it, you know, you're, you, I remember trying to focus on that and, and also keep them, you know, I should throw out. Um, this was a really quick flight. I mean, this was three minutes okay. from, you know, from takeoff to insertion. I mean, three minutes, 180 seconds. It really ain't a whole lot of time uh, to enjoy the ride and think about all the things that come. I mean, literally, you get up and you start the flight, and next thing you know, you're, you're on the assault. No, and it's a fair point because I, I can tell you, uh, you know, personally, I remember being called out on missions in Iraq, and as a leader, you're so focused on making sure that your men – are doing everything that they need to do. And, and it almost distracts you away from the fact that you're going to be in harm's way, that you could ultimately meet your maker at the end of this whole thing. And, and it's almost a blessing because it, it's great to be able to put your focus and that energy on something else. Because it, it, sometimes, as you know, it, it could overwhelm you. That, that feeling of fear, that feeling of, I don't know what's going to happen today, could, could swallow you whole at times. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, and I think that is a reality that that every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine, you know, faces when when they're they're going to, uh, you know, go to combat. I mean, it absolutely is. Uh, you, you, I couldn't have said it any better. Okay, so you take this short three minute flight. Um, you can obviously, you know, see your target from the air. What else are you seeing from the from the helicopter as you fly over? Um, I'm seeing nothing. Literally. Okay, I, I, I couldn't. You know, it looks like a normal day down below. Yeah, and I, I was sitting in the in the, the the seat in the middle of the helicopter between the two door gunners, um, so I really wasn't looking out. I mean, the Goodyear blimp could have been flying right next to us. I wouldn't have seen. How it. many people were in your helicopter? Uh, thirteen. Okay, so thirteen people in the black. Was it snug? Was it was it overcrowded? It, it, it was crowded. This is in the back. You know, we we also we had you know thirteen Rangers plus a four man crew on the Blackhawk. Okay, so uh, it, it, and then two crew chiefs. All right, so you get to over your spot where you guys are going to fast rope in. Uh, give, give me a play-by-play kind of what happens next. Yeah, so, you know, the pilots are, you know, so everybody that, that's listening knows uh, it's, it's quite quite amazing that um, I'm on a headset talking to my pilots, and I can also hear all the other pilots in the entire task force talking all at once, which is a little confusing if you've never done it before. So, you know, I can have a little bit of an idea about what's going on when the other helicopters as they're making their approach. Pilots are talking to me, telling us, giving me a timeline of, hey, we're at one minute, hey, we're at 30 seconds. And, you know, as you're preparing for that um, with our particular helicopter, which was the last one going in, um, we had a very abrupt stop, literally in midair. I mean, the, the helicopter went almost vertical and comes to a hover, and certainly not in 30 seconds, um, from when he told me, or let me just back up, Mark. You know, from the time he gave me the 30-second mark to the time our helicopter stopped, it's about like 10 seconds, <laughs> which was really odd. And I hear the pilot say over the headset, I can't see anything. Can't see anything. I look outside, and I realize that we're enveloped in basically, a, you know, a man-made sandstorm. You know, all the helicopters that had preceded us onto the 
into the target area had, you know, flown so low with so much power that, you know, every the 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 wind from the uh, the air being pushed down from the rotors of all the helicopters, you know, blew all the sand and dust skyward, like literally now, off the road. Could you see any and other? You any, can't see. Could you see any other choppers across the way from you at your height, or no? No. Okay, no. so but we were the we were the last one going in, so you know, couldn't see, really couldn't see anything. Had no uh, um, depth perception, if you will, on on where everybody. By this time, I'm assuming everybody else is scattered to their different insertion points on the target area. So. You know, for me, all I'm thinking is, wow, this isn't, you know, this wasn't what we had planned for. And, you know, this um, is okay, though. At least we know. The pilot says we're, we're, we're short of our insertion point. We're going to put you in here because of the threat. Get on the ground and go three blocks in the same direction of flight, and you'll be, you know, in the right spot. Now, every, just for people listening, every single time you go into combat and you have a plan, it never goes the way you plan. I mean, it's just it's inevitable for as much training and as much rehearsals and as much planning we do before we ever go into a combat scenario. It never, almost never goes as planned. And so this is the first kind of thing that was a diversion from the plan. Was anything at that point in time saying, okay, this is bad, or is this kind of just feel like, hey, this is normal, we were prepared for this? Uh, maybe a little bit in between, you know, because it, it always throws a curve. You know, when that curveball comes, it always – you know, jolts you into, you know, an eye-opening moment, and you think, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of at a um, disadvantage before we even get started. Right. But we've done it, you know, but you know we've done it before, and we can, we can adapt and we can adjust and, you know, not hit the panic button, you know, not hit the panic button. And also, Mark, you know, for anybody that's listening, at this point in, in, in the um, sequence of events for, for me, certainly, you know, when you're down on that, that 30 seconds, at that point, all you want to do is just get on the ground. Right. You know, literally, you're, that, 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 that maybe it's humans, uh, your human need to literally just have my feet on the ground touching, you know, the earth. Uh, so I have some control. I have some sense of it. No matter what's going on down there, I'd much rather, I just want to be on the ground. So that kind of overrides a lot of this, too. Okay, and in that, obviously... Uh, this is where the first kind of bad thing happens, in particular to your chalk of everything that seemed to have gone wrong that day. Uh, I'll let you talk us through it, but obviously uh, the, the first hiccup was what? Yeah, so the first hiccup was being in the wrong spot on the insertion. The second hiccup uh, occurred while we were inserting. One of our soldiers um, lost control and fell out of the, literally fell off the rope and uh, you know tumbled to the ground. So we've got an immediate literary casualty um, before we've even gotten started. What was his name? Uh, Todd Blackburn. Okay, so uh, he was one of the guys who, who basically fell. Did he miss the rope, or did he just come let go early? Do you know what happened, or was too dusty you know, to see? It, 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 the guy who, who followed him said he saw him grab the rope, and he started to slide, and he was like two people ahead of me. Um, saw his head go below the deck, and that's about the time the helicopter took a very – unexpected um, uh, dip. It sort of just canted over to the side uh, just a couple of degrees, which happens in helicopters. I mean, it's not a not an uncommon thing, but it was just enough while Todd had the rope that he lost control. He was also the um, carrying a bandolier of, of um, machine gun ammo and uh, lost control, and he fell um, almost 60 feet. Now, did you know that he fell, or you didn't realize that until you got on the ground? I had no idea anything would happen until literally uh, the, the, probably about the last 10 feet of my 
my insertion when I looked down and I could see that there was a body at the bottom of the rope. What did it look like? So my guy, I, my thought was somebody had already gotten shot that we're already in a firefight. Okay, and so what? What you just saw a limp body laying there, or? Uh, well, I saw I saw a body on the ground, and there were a couple of soldiers uh, administering to him. Okay. Um, and and he, again, you know, you get on the ground, and you're like, hey, where did he get shot? And you're like, he didn't shot, get shot. He fell. Like, holy mackerel. But again, you know, training kicks in, and I know that sounds like a cliche. Um, you know, the medic says, hey, we got to get him evacuated. He's going to die. And, you know, just like you do a million times in training, you turn to your radio operator and tell him to call in a, a medevac. I mean, we do it routinely. There's nothing, again, even as bad as it is, it's nothing out of the ordinary. And, of course, when I call the guy, he says, I can't get comms with the uh, with the command. My yeah. radio's not working. Ne- never fails. For those who don't know, yeah. radios never work when you need them to in combat, ever. Uh, it, it no, is and, the- you know, and, and considering that we had just done a radio check, <laughs> you know, literally four and a half minutes prior. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, literally, you know, Mark, I thought it, it never occurred to me until just recently, you know, as I started thinking about this, this story and, and realize, you know, it was only a three-minute flight and figure, you know, time to get everybody in and hover around and give it four minutes. But literally, we had done a radio check before the last thing before he stepped on the aircraft was just, you know, doing the, 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 the check with the command. So in four and a half minutes, five minutes, um, it broke. All right, so Blackburn is on the ground right now, obviously injured, needs help. You're not going to get a medevac, which means a helicopter is not going to come pick him out. What's the decision next to care for him? Well, so we've got we we're, we're blessed. We've we've got some some great medics working on the guy, and um, it, it comes to the um, sort of my my idea is that well, you know, if they can't get to us, and this is a this is definitely a loss of life scenario, then we need to move him, you know, to the target. Uh, again, it's something you rehearse and you plan. You have aid and letter teams, and um, this was no different. Again, just you you do this without really a whole lot of thought. Once I figured out sort of the lay of land, and, and again, Mark, when I say I, and I apologize to listeners because it makes it sound like it's the macho, and it's really not, um, anybody would have truly realized, hey, if we, 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 we've got to evacuate him clearly, um, get the aid and litter team to take him. And so that's what we did. Okay, so are you seeing anything else go on at this point in time? I mean, after you kind of get that situation under control, there are still helicopters hovering overhead. Are you seeing other guys on the ground? Are shots being fired? Where are we? Uh, yeah, so the helicopters have dropped us and taken off. We're working on this Blackburn scenario, and then I realized that now we're we're taking fire. Mm-hmm. You know, literally, we're we're engaged. Um, the rest of my my guys are engaged in a firefight with the bad guys in in three directions. You know I mean, literally, in the north and the west and the east. This is all happening, you know, in the first twenty or thirty seconds of being on the ground. And when that first shot gets fired, what goes through your head? Um, you know, I think for me, it's, was it close or not close? You know, am I hearing gunfire in the city, which is not uncommon, or is this, you know, sort of getting the hair on the back of your neck to stand up? And it's unfortunately the latter that's going on. Um, you know, this is, uh, you you know, we, we have clearly, uh, Murphy has ridden with us and we are, we are stuck right dead, dead in the middle. And honestly, couldn't tell you what anybody else on the target building was on the, on the, entire task force was doing other than my focus was right here on you know fighting this fight and evacuating this soldier did you have a hard time setting up that l-shaped perimeter you talked about to to, you know get your corner and i tell you these 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 men these young rangers just like our soldiers and 
Marines and everybody that's on the ground over in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, they've done it a million times. And, you know, if they're well-trained and well-disciplined, they'll, they'll do it. They'll do it on autopilot. And, and they did. You know, I give the greatest credit to my my young sergeants. You know, my, I had two team leaders, Casey Joyce and Jim Telcher, that were, you know, they were, they were fighting that fight for me. Is there a moment here where you feel like things are starting to settle in, despite the fact that gunfire is coming at you, which obviously is hectic and sounds hectic to a, to a normal listener, but at a certain point in time, if you've got your perimeter set up and you're in position, you feel like, okay, I'm in control of the situation. Did any did it ever calm down for you like that for a moment? You know, it was, it was peaks and valleys, I can tell you. You know, there are moments where you feel like you're in complete control even during a firefight, and then moments where you can sort of feel your – your 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 confidence may be uh, fleeting. You know, you start getting focused on, gosh, you know, this this is really bad. Uh, and and I could just tell you throughout the day that sort of would would come and go. And, right. and I know for myself personally, you know, when I myself started feeling like, man, I'm I'm starting to lose control of my own, um, you know, emotions and feelings. You know, I watch the boys and see them doing it. And I'm like, man, they're they're doing it. I, I you know, suck it up. I got to hold it together for them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, what is what happens next for you? I mean, we obviously know a Blackhawk's going to get hit, so how does that happen? Do you see it? What do you know? What goes on around you? Uh, yeah, so here we are. We, we, we eventually get, um, get, get uh, Ranger Blackburn evacuated, and now it's starting to come in. You know, our radio is working. We can hear what's going on in the battlefield. Uh, we, we, I don't know the extent of anybody else's um, fighting other than, you know, their, their city is definitely, you know, we're in a big fight, but the word is we got, um, the two guys we were after and uh, a couple others that were there, no indeed, but we're going to get the word shortly to converge. Uh, all the units will in the perimeter, we're going to converge down on the target building and, you know, we'll, we'll extract from there. Right. So, you know, kind of once we got through that first, at least, and I say we, meaning me and my guys, once we, you know, we had secured our part of the perimeter. We had gotten Blackburn evacuated, and now it's just waiting on you know the commander to to make the decision to collapse back to the target building, and then we'll leave. And literally everybody's thinking, okay, you know what? We're scary as it is, and all that stuff. We're still in a fight, but we know we're, we'll be able to move back, and um, we'll be out of here shortly. Like I, I remember specifically thinking that, you know, myself, like, okay, we're Kind of, we've been through this hurdle. We're, we're, we'll be good. Let's, we'll, as soon as he says go, we're going to make the, the dash and get out of here. Now, Mark Bowden in his book, Black Hawk Down, does an excellent job of, of, of telling this story. Uh, and for those who don't know, and I'm curious to know if you heard this over the radio, uh, but Sergeant Dominic Pillow, who was in the Humvee that was taking Sergeant Black, uh, PFC Blackburn back to base, uh, at, at one point in time was shot and killed. Did you hear the call that he was killed over the radio? I didn't. Okay. Did, so you didn't know anything no about that? No. Nope. Right, he was the first guy, and for those who are listening, he was the first guy who was actually killed uh, during the actual raid, and he was killed uh, on the ride back uh, in the Humvee. I just they remember, I remember Mark Bowden recounting the story that when it went over the, the wire that he was killed, everybody kind of froze for a moment, and it, you, you know, you, it, it became real. Even though it was already real yeah. and bullets are flying, it becomes more real when you know you've got a fallen, a fallen brother. Yes, exactly, and and uh, you know, I guess it's one of those. Be thankful that the the radio. I wasn't listening to radio, or ours was still not functioning correctly. But you know, I had no idea that that had happened. All right, so you guys are there. You're waiting for the call to extract to exfil out of there. What happens? Um, sitting there, and uh, I remember distinctly my uh, 
uh, saw gunner, my white machine gunner, Dave Beamer, is right next to me, and he is uh, focusing. We're hiding behind this car, and he's focusing to the east on this four-way intersection. And he literally turns to me and says, uh, a Blackhawk just crashed. Words to that effect. I mean, literally, he just like tapped me on the leg. He's like, sorry, never seen a helicopter just crash. Very matter-of-factly. Uh, just about. And your reaction uh, was what? Like, you're kidding me. Like, literally, you're, 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 you're kind of, you're kidding me. And you turn and you look down and, you know, about 300 yards away, I can see this big, um, clearly a pile of rubble, um, you know, a little bit of movement there. And, you know, you, it's one of those, it's such a, um, a shock to your system. Um, and I have no explanation for it, Mark. And I don't want to sound any braver than I, than I am. But, you know, I just remember thinking like, okay, well, that, that's where we're heading. You know, that's where we're going. You know, we're, we're clearly going to go to this crash site and, and that's where it's gonna, where it's all gonna, gonna, gonna wind up. And that's the next thing you do. It's sort of matter of fact about it. And I say that again, knowing that, hey, this is pretty scary, and I know this is bad, and you know, this has just changed our our mission completely. But we also know we're not going to leave anybody behind. Right. And, and that's just not even in the decision cycle. Well, and just to kind of clarify for everybody listening, uh, General Garrison, who was in charge of the whole thing summed it up very succinctly because as you've stated several times you're going in there with speed surprise you want to get in move get your target and get out as quick as possible as soon as that black hawk got hit and went down the mission now changed from a snatch and grab to a search and recovery and general garrison said it very succinctly quoting him we just lost the initiative and that meaning that all of a sudden our mission is completely changed from grabbing these guys these bad guys now we've got to worry about as you said getting everybody out alive yep yep okay i mean exactly and you know, I wasn't, uh, again, I was, I, that was another one of those um, didn't hear it while it was uh, being broadcast. And other than, hey, this is, like I said, this is something that, that, that clearly is going to, it's changed our mission completely. It, it, as you said, no longer snatch mission. Now it is a recovery operation. When do you get the call to go to the crash site? Well, you know, the word comes over um, the radio at this point says, hey, we, we need to, you know, everybody needs to move in and, and, and set up a perimeter around the crash site. And for me, um, you know, I'm looking down this alleyway, and we've got enemy in between us and the crash site. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to move my guys, you know, directly, you know, in the shortest distance possible, directly to this crash site. Um, one without, you know, fratricide, and two, you know, clearly the the route that we would assume we would go on, you know, directly down this alley, isn't going to work. So, you know, I'm trying to formulate this movement plan on my on my, you know, literally on my feet. How we're gonna how we're gonna move over there. When one of the convoys of rangers um, literally just they turned around, and there's a convoy of rangers, you know, right next to my position. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Danny McKnight, the battalion commander, um, you know, jumps out, and you know, we're we have a quick conference. I said, "Hey, sir, you know, the helicopter just crashed right over there. That's where we're going." And he says, "Yeah, we're going there too. Get your guys in." you know, in this, in one of our vehicles uh, or a couple of your vehicles and we'll drive over there together. So, you know, like, Hey, case closed. That makes sense. We, we don't gotta, don't gotta try and run down this alleyway and, and risk being shot. We can get on, you know, the heavily armed vehicles and drive over there together. All right. And so is that what happens next? Nothing else happens between when you talk to Lieutenant Colonel McKnight and, and getting to the crash site? Uh, no. So we, we get, uh, we, we, we get everybody on the vehicles and, um, you know, we start this maneuver, you know, in, I don't know how many vehicles we had, probably, you know, 10 or so, I'm guessing, um, you know, a long convoy 
driving through a city that really is not set up on a grid. And oh, by the way, the the you know you don't really have a map because you're not familiar with the area. You're looking at satellite photos, and um, you know we start realizing that man, we 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 can't make some of the obvious turns. You can't just go up a block, turn right, go down three blocks, and turn right and be there. You know, all of a sudden we're sort of weaseling our way through um, the city, trying to you know generally get over towards this crash site, and you know starts to take a lot of fire. All right, the convoy gets ambushed. When you say a lot of fire, uh, comparatively speaking to when you first landed on the ground, how much more are we talking? Oh, uh, I mean, just constant fire, Um, you know, from windows, from rooftops, from the road, from the street, left and right, up and down. I mean, it's literally, it's going on all the way around us. And I'll tell you, that, that, I thought back of this, that was probably um, the scariest moment um, for me uh, because I was lying down in the vehicle. Uh, I had climbed in and sort of fallen over the top on my back, and I couldn't quite uh, sit myself up because the vehicle is moving, but my legs are hanging over the sides. And I remember thinking, you know, I- I'm going to take a bullet right here, and, and it's going to hurt. Um, oh. And I couldn't do anything about it. Like, it was so that- – that was that was a-, a-, a miserable, miserable experience. And so, you know, what the-, the Somalis would do, believe it or not, they literally would line up on both sides of the street and just face to the center – and start shooting while the vehicles drive through. Wow. I mean, it, it's crazy. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you five meters away, you could see these people. Um, so, you know, we're a series of ambushes, and with each ambush, we have more wounded. You know, so we get out, police up our wounded, get them back on the vehicle, you know, give them some quick aid, get them on the vehicle, and start going. And, and again, I'm talking, you know, this is four or five different ambushes. Um, you know, eventually... You know, we've attrited this force in this particular convoy to the point where we're, we're not mission capable. And, you know, not and only are we getting lost, but we don't have enough. We don't have enough soldiers to, um, you know, really do anything on the crash site, and we barely have enough to give security to get our wounded back to the to the airfield. Okay, and so what, what happens next? I mean, is the decision to stay put? I mean, do you want to try to exfil the wounded? Uh, what, what chronologically take yeah, me well, through it? We're at some point in this thing, and I don't know exactly well because by this point, I'm not on. Um, you know, I'm not on the radio anymore. Um, you know, the decision is made that we have too many wounded in this convoy, and we need to basically turn around and um, one get out of the the direct fire as quickly as possible, and then circle around the city to get back to the airfield. Um, you know, so we can regroup. And so we, we basically do this, you know, 19-point turn, you know, all these vehicles in the middle of the city block and turn this thing around, fight through a couple of ambushes to eventually make our way back to the airfield. And so you never actually got to the crash site? Never. Nope. <laughs> wow. And so you're just driving through this, this wild west right now, being shot at from all angles, and the decision is made to go back and get out of there and kind of rearm, refit, regroup, and then go back out. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And for us, what is happening, again, a lot of this is, is looking back after it's all pieced together, uh, Mark. You know, we have, by this point in the battle, we've alerted the 10th Mountain Division, you know, who's the other American force in, in country, um, that we're, you know, we've got a helicopter that's shot down. And somewhere in here, Michael Durant's helicopter has been shot down. But I'm not quite sure exactly on the on the timeline. Right, that's the second helicopter to be shot down. Now, again, not being sure, do you think like you were out of the city at this point in time, back at the airport when it was shot down, or do you think that happened? I I, I honestly, I don't know. I I, I must admit, I have not read Black Hawk Down in a while, so I'd probably have to look back at 
as a timeline to piece it together. But I know that by the time I got back to the airfield, you know, there were multiple convoys of U.S. forces as well as kind of they had rounded up. Literally, we had our cooks, we had mechanics, we had everybody we could muster from, um, you know, the task force was going on, going out into the city as we were pulling back in, um, you know, in, in hopes of getting to the, you know, the, the crash sites. Um, and that was uncommon, you know. right? I mean, you weren't prepared to see all these people spinning up or, or did that kind of yeah, give no, you an no, idea no, of how totally, bad things were? Totally. Un- uh, yeah. Just uh, like unbelievable. And, uh, you know, you're in a little bit of a, um, maybe a state of a little disbelief when this is all happening. Um, and you're like, wow, I, I can't even begin to piece together what all has gone on. Other than we do know by the time I get to the airfield that, that early evening that, um, we do have the, a, a lot of Rangers and Delta guys that are at the first crash site. You know, they, they've made it there really pretty quickly. Um, in fact, we had people at the crash site while our vehicles were being ambushed trying to get there. So, you know, we, we, we felt pretty good about the, the defense of the crash site. And, um, you know, now it's a question of trying to find, you know, capable, capable soldiers that can go out and, you know, uh, attend to all the things that need to be attended to. You mentioned how shot up you guys were and how bad it was at, at this point in time. Do you, do you know or have you seen anybody who's been wounded or killed? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, what, what is that like? I mean, what, what goes through your mind when you see it? Um, you know, it, 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 again, for me personally, I can only speak for me. Um, you know, it's a, it's one of these, um, uh, you, you know, you recognize that it's bad and you recognize that this soldier, um, has just been really, really wounded badly or has been killed. And yet in the same, in sort of in the same breath, you just kind of keep, you just kind of keep driving on and keep doing your thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't like a paralyzing, um, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just saw, you know, somebody that's been, been wounded or killed as much as you just, the gravity of it keeps weighing on you. But you also just, I, I don't recall it being any, uh, at the mo- at that moment, you know, right. the grief comes later, but at that moment, you just, you're just kind of like, man, that's, oh, this sucks. And, and, you know, but you got to keep driving on and, and you realize, Hey man, we got to protect the force. And, you know, that kind of um, um, uh, self-sustainment uh, maybe for the force kind of kicks in. At least that was what I, I experienced and what I saw people experience. I never saw anybody, um, you know, just um, shut down. I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you, did, did some of the younger soldiers who are getting their taste of the military for the first time, you know, you mentioned you have PFCs with you and things of that, did they react unfavorably? Were they emotional about it? Uh, I, I, I don't recall. Um, listen, you know, there's no shame in anybody being scared. Uh, but I, I don't recall seeing anybody, um, you know, again, um, you know, whether you want to say cower or whether you want to say shut down. I, I mean, I just, I just never saw it. Maybe it happened and I, I didn't see it, but, um, you know, I, I think everybody was, um, universally scared and universally, you know, um, quite sad, you know, when you see your buddies or, I mean, that does put an exclamation point on, on the um, reality, but I also, you know, people are still shooting. People are still, you know, trying to, to protect the force and trying to get to these crash sites. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting um, human behavior kind right. of observation. All right. So you get back to base now. Do you end up going back out into the city? 
Uh, we didn't. You know, we got back, and I remember after we got all the wounded all uh, to the triage site at the hospital and, you know, went back to start looking on the ammo, um, the battalion commander came up to me and he said, hey, how many guys do you have that aren't wounded? And, uh, you know, it was either like five or six with my, with me. And he very matter-of-factly said, you know, we don't really have anybody on the perimeter here of the airfield, of our compound. Um, I want you to get your guys and get them out to the perimeter here uh, immediately and then come to the operations center and we'll go from there. So that really was, uh, you know, for Matt Eversman and, and Chalk 4, that is where, you know, our piece of the fight um, in the city basically stopped. Okay, so the rest of the stuff that goes on and the guys who were stuck in the city overnight and everything else, I, I mean, obviously, are you hearing about that? I, I assume you're hearing about what's going on, the fact that they're still out there and you know that vehicles aren't pouring back in and, and helicopters aren't coming back in, or are they coming back in, I should say? Yeah, so the helicopters are in constant, um, you know, coming back, taking off, you know, to resub- rearm, resupply and everything. Um, you know, I, I am actually able now, I'm in the operations center, able to, um, you know, listen and watch the feeds and hear, you know, real time what's going on. And I, again, I don't know when it was um, time-wise, but the the you know there was a there was a, a bit of a lull in the action from the enemy's perspective. You know, when the when the sun went down, um, right. You know, and again, not to say oh it was all easy then, but you know, dramatically different complexion. Uh, you know, at nighttime, um, they listen. There were a lot of bad guys still shooting, but uh, not quite as ferocious as it has been during the day. And for various reasons, is they don't, you know, they're not trained to fight at night, and they don't have the night vision goggles, and they don't, you know, know our plan now. And we've got a, quite a bit of force that's that's going in, um, you know, to to dog on. Uh, perform this rescue operation. I mean, as you read the book, you know, I mean, we had the Malaysians and the Pakistani army provided, um, you know, some armored relief to come in to help, you know, move soldiers, you know, uh, extract our, our soldiers, which, you know, eventually happens at the end of the, you know, early next morning, we get everybody, you know, safely through the night, recover the bodies, and then, you know, off we go to the to the Pakistani stadium to, you know, to do the final extraction. What is your feeling after the fact? I mean, you, you decompress a little bit. When does the magnitude of what went on really hit you? Yeah, it's when everybody gets back. Um, when everybody gets back and you start to hear, you know, all the stories and, and from all the other, you know, all your other mates that are, you know, throughout the task force and you realize that, you know, it literally it was, you know, the hornet's nest from that everybody landed on. Um, you know, it wasn't just... Hey, bad luck for Eversman and Chuck Four in the wrong spot with Todd Blackburn. I mean, you know, this happened, you know, to everybody that was fighting in that that city. Um, you know, there was this this just confluence of bad luck and you know, sort of a domino effect all the way around. And that's when you realize, uh, again, for me, was the the gravity of it uh, well beyond what I had thought. And the second piece was, you know, you know, like just a miracle that 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 anybody got out. You know, you're like, I mean, if these, if these, if this enemy had, had been, been at least bit trained in thinking, you know, they would have just diverted all their forces to the airfield. Did you, you uh, know, I mean, they, they could have let, leave, leave the Americans in the city, go take down the airfield, then these people right. have nowhere to go. Right. You know, I mean, nowhere. It's, I would submit they, that they probably would have had a, a pretty good shot of, of having success doing that. 
Did you get emotional? Did you see anybody get emotional? Yeah, I mean, no, totally did. Totally, absolutely did. You know, again, there are these moments where, you know, when the reality kicks in, um, when you're back somewhat in the safety that it starts to, you know, really hit you what, what just happened. And, again, when you, you go to view the wounded or, you know, the, the deceased and you realize that, you know, that those those lives will never – lives of the soldiers that are wounded – lives of the families back here are never going to be the same. And that's, um, you know, that's an awful lot for anybody to, to, to wrestle with. When you look back on this day, and now it's over 20 years later, uh, what, what do you remember the most? What sticks with you the most? I think, the, the, honestly, Mark, uh, when, when I look back I, and I think of like, just these snapshot moments of these soldiers, and listen, most of my time was spent with my guys, with my Rangers and Truck 4, but you know when you what you see with your eyes and what you hear from other people, you know just this, um, you know the courage of these young men um, is indescribable. It really is. Uh, you know, there's not you can't just say they're brave. Man, they were heroic. They were. The, I mean, just to do that in 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 that kind of a furnace. Um, is just unbelievable to me that despite anyone's fear, anyone's concerns, anybody's, you know, emotions, you know, to a man, these these men were out, um, you know, given far more than they got. And, uh, you know, when you sort of bleeds in, I mean, the, the mission accomplishment, it comes with a price, but, you know, mission accomplishment, just not for the sake of the mission, but, um, you know, for this, this, um, you know, this intrinsic feeling of, of, um, you know, professionalism that, you know, this is what we're here to do. And this, this, this mission is important. It means something. There's a reason we did it. And there's a reason we had to do it. And as bloody as it got, we still were able to do it. Um, you know, that, that, that's sort of what jumps back at me is just how unbelievably brave those Rangers and Delta guys and SEALs and 160th folks were. I, I hate to ask this question, knowing because I, I've been in combat myself. But is there anything you regret? Um, you know, that's a fair question, and uh, there, there's always a couple of things. You know, as you, you recap, gosh, if I'd only would have known, you know, if I'd have known how bad it was in the Bakara market, would that have made me make a different decision um, before we went out on the raid? You know, would I have brought my night vision goggles with me? Would I have brought more water? Would I have done that? And I came very early on, Mark. I, I, I kind of went through this um, this exercise, and 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 I, I think to myself that you know I don't believe that that I personally made a decision that um, got anybody hurt or got anybody killed, um, which again sounds sort of cavalier and, and selfish, and I don't mean it to come out across like that. No, it doesn't. I mean, and that's why I said I hate to ask the question, because I, I, I've been through this before. Like, I've been, anybody who's been in combat it always goes back and reflects on things they could have done better, things they should have done, things they would have done, what might have changed certain outcomes, and there's never an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're just like, you know, I, I, I mean, of course we would wish, man, if we would have been you know, if we would have if we would have just picked up Blackburn right from that spot and moved down to our right location, you know, maybe that would have changed something. Maybe that would have had an impact. But you know, you do get to that point where you're like, you can't chase your tail anymore. You just gotta, you know, you did the best with what you had at the time, and um, that's okay. Did the politics of the thing after the fact ever get into your mind? Did they ever bother you? 
Yeah, after I mean after the fact, um, but more of in a passing. Like, well, that was kind of stupid, you know. Like, how did how did we possibly go from you know peacekeeping, peace enforcement uh, mission to a direct action mission, you know, under the same you know administration? And you know, how did all these things start to unravel at the at the foreign policy level, at the strategic level, that had a direct impact on? Um, you know, our, our soldiers. And, you know, you know this story. Um, you know, we, we packed up our bags and we left. And, um, you know, gosh, we hadn't been home more than a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, we're flying a deed to Kenya on an American C-130 for peace talks. <laughs> Unreal. Uh, and, you, you know, you're like, this is, this is beyond tragic. This is just, um, you know, we, we've, we, left, we left Texas blood, you know, on the streets there. And, um you know, you can really get pretty pretty bent when you look back on that stuff. But, you know, I went to war with Bill Clinton. I went to war under George Bush. Um, you know, we've got a great force that can do it. I'm not sure at the most senior levels that they've got their acts completely together. Um, you know, we, we, we get into we, – we like to point fingers at a lot of things, uh, particularly in this day and age. But, um, you, you know, and I realize we are a function of our, our government and arm of – uh, the, this great nation, and um, you know, you only hope that the the folks that are making decisions are 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 somewhat wise in doing it because they they've got willing participants that are going out and do it. So yeah, you do get a little bent after after the fact, thinking of you know just things that don't make sense, and um, that's a head scratcher. Well, uh, listen, I, I your story is unreal. Uh, I'm glad I've gotten to know you over the years, and I'm certainly, uh, you know, consider you a friend, but I, I, I look up to you for so many things in so many ways uh, because of what you went through in this experience. And I, I know that you went on to finish your military career and lead other young men and other young women uh, and, and make them better people. Do you, as you finish out your military career, how much did you draw off that experience and what did it do for you? Oh, well, you know, tremendously. I mean, that listen, that that had a, you know, a lot of validation to, you know, you know, our training doctrine, you know, and how we train soldiers, how we prepare for battle and all that stuff. You know, it, it was a, um, you know, a pretty significant um, event historically that has had an impact on the way the, you know, our Army doctrine, you know, and how we fight. And to be a part of that, you know, from the rest of the time, uh, of my career was, um, you know, always refresh, you know, I always jump at a chance to tell people and share, you know, and particularly, you know, the things I might've done wrong, you know, about water and supply and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, so that somebody does it, that's going to battle for the first time as a leader doesn't have to, you know, relearn that lesson. I mean, that, that's pretty, pretty significant. And, you know, you get a, get a big, um, get a big amount of satisfaction helping share, lessons learned with, you know, people that haven't had been down that road before. Uh, you know, but like a friend of mine said the other day, you know, war stories are, are war stories. And, um, you know, they're all good and they're all different. But, you know, it's that what's beneath the surface of that, um, you know, sort of the DNA of the warrior, that's where we make our money. And, you know, sharpening, you know, that, that psyche so that men and women today can um, – you know, go anywhere to do anything in any fight they need to do and know that they're going to, um, they, they, they can do it, they can survive, and that we've got a force that's capable of, of doing that. And that's pretty, um, you know, I know it's a little deep for this afternoon, but that, that's a pretty big uh, uh, deal to be a part of that. 
Well, Matt Eversman, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I really appreciate you joining me on the first ever Hazard Ground podcast. Uh, you were absolutely amazing. Thank you for your time, and, and seriously, hey, God bless. Mark, it was my, my pleasure, buddy, anytime, and I uh, just thank you for, for all you do. I know the listeners love you. Uh, I don't pitch fastballs at you all the time, but particularly, you know, for your service to our country, multiple deployments, great career. Uh, you know, just God bless you and keep your powder dry. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.